justice is important. It's very important. As human beings, we know and feel this from the core of our beings. Even young children get it. That's not fair, they say, when their sibling gets handed a bigger piece of cake than them. That's not fair, they cry, when a friend in a nursery gets longer in the Rapunzel dress than they do. I heard that myself, just on Friday. Promptly followed by the complaint, No one's listening to me! When neither the teachers nor myself moved instantly to do something about it. As we grow older, we become exercised by other issues of injustice which connect with our lives in some way. Racism, gender discrimination, poverty, poor treatment of the elderly, climate change devastating the communities who've done least to cause it, lack of resources and social care staff in rural areas. These issues upset and anger us. They lead us to protest and complain, and rightly so. The desire to seek justice is inbuilt in us as human beings, and we should not be surprised about that. Human beings are made in the image of God, and God is the God of justice. His ways are holy, his thoughts are pure, and he has compassion on all that he has made. God wants to see all his creation treated justly, and one day that justice will be enacted in full. When Jesus returns, all will be put right. The proud will be humbled, the humble will be raised, and the world will be restored to the just place God designed it to be. And as we await that day, all believers are to play their part in seeking God's justice on earth. Justice then is important. It should be part of all of our lives. One of the most common types of injustice in our world relates to the use of land and the tendency of the powerful to rob it from the weak. We've seen this in every corner of the globe. Turn on the news and you see Putin stealing land from Ukraine. Look at our cities, places like London and Manchester, and you see the poor being pushed further and further out as the centres get gentrified. Millions of refugees are on the move across various continents as their land is laid waste. Even here on Isla, you do not have to travel far to see a set of ruins, the consequences of the highland clearances still visible 200 years on. The desire for land has always been a breeding ground for injustice, and that is exactly what we see in our passage today. In the Bible, Israel had a revolutionary view about land. All of it, every square centimetre of it, belonged to God. It was his, because he created it. In the Old Testament, human beings could not own land, they couldn't buy it or sell it, but God did graciously allow them to use it. Actually, this has been God's plan all along. Human beings were designed to look after the land, and as they did so, the land would flourish and go on to support more life, which in turn delighted God. Yet the Old Testament was also very clear that there was a justice dimension to all this. After their experience of living as slaves in Egypt, Israel were to live in such a way that no one could become a slave again. They were to work to create a society where all could thrive and no one need live in poverty. That is why there are long chapters detailing how God allocated the land, first to nations, then to tribes, then to individual families within those tribes. All of this was to ensure that everyone had enough land to live a good life. Now, to ensure this structure lasted, God placed some very specific rules in the law. Once a family had been given their land, it remained their responsibility. This was to stop unscrupulous people grabbing more of it for themselves. 
Even if a family fell on hard times and mortgaged some land to pay off a debt, at the end of a 50-year cycle, that land had to be returned to the original owners and the slate wiped clean, no matter how much of the debt was outstanding. Just imagine if these godly principles were brought back in today. It caused uproar and delight in equal measure. And that is because our society today is so unjust. Now what is interesting about all this is that these values about the land were not just legalistic rules to be obeyed. God actually made it clear that this was part of how the people were to worship him. Living justly, showing concern for the well-being of others, ensuring fair treatment of all, delighted God. When God's people did this, it pleased the Lord more than just their songs and daily devotions. The same is true when we seek to do justice today. Now, why have I told you all this? I told you because it explains why Naboth refused to give King Ahab his land. He was not just rudely disobeying the king, he was humbly obeying the Lord. The words of verse 5 are very clear. The Lord forbid that I should give you the inheritance of my ancestors. This then is a chapter about God's justice and Ahab's flat denial of it. The story began by telling us that Naboth lived in Jezreel. King Ahab lived in his giant palace in Samaria, but he also maintained another plush royal residence next door to Naboth's. Building lots of imposing palaces and castles has always been a key component in royal propaganda. Now there is a sizable distance between Jezreel and Samaria. So far, in fact, the land grab that takes place in this story has to be arranged by written correspondence. All of this highlights the utter disregard of Ahab's royal machine for the personal needs of Naboth. He is about to steal the land from a neighbour he has never bothered to get to know. As the story continues, it becomes clear that despite having a palace in Samaria and another royal residence in Jezreel, Ahab wants more land. His greed has become fixated on Naboth's vineyard. As I said a moment ago, being a godly lawkeeper... Naboth refuses to give it to him. On hearing this refusal, Ahab petulantly storms off back to Samaria and sulks like a child. He runs upstairs, slams the bedroom door shut and refuses to come down for tea. The only thing I would say for Ahab at this point is that although he is greatly upset by Naboth's refusal, he seemingly has no intention of overturning it. But sadly, that does not remain the case for very long. When Ahab's wife Jezebel hears what has happened, she very much has other ideas. Jezebel instantly perceives her husband as weak, which he certainly was compared to her, and so she sets about hatching her own wicked scheme to get rid of Naboth. Her plan is to use false witnesses to get Naboth convicted on trumped-up charges. She'll then have him executed for blasphemy and treason. What is most chilling about this plan is just how careful Jezebel is to appear to be doing the right thing. She makes sure there are two witnesses, as the law demanded. She makes this an issue about the honour due to God's name and the respect due to God's king. Again, two things both mentioned in the Jewish law. Jezebel does everything she can to hide her real motives under a mask of decency, loyalty and even devotion to God. This is outrageous injustice spun to look like justice before all the ordinary people. It's a move straight out of Putin's playbook. 
and of course at first it seems to work. There's no way Naboth could withstand this royal power, and so he is murdered in cold blood. Ahab then goes down to take possession of his new vineyard, feeling very pleased with himself. Hasn't he and his wife done well? We're left in no doubt that human greed can lead to really terrible things, even murder. No wonder we're so vociferously warned about it right throughout the Bible. Now Jezebel and Ahab may think they've got away with their murder and corruption and land grabbing, but it is soon to become clear that that is far from true. They may have fooled the judiciary of Israel, but they will never fool the one true judge, the real owner of the stolen land. God sends Elijah to go and confront Ahab right at the scene of his crime. Let's hear his words again from verse 19. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your blood. Yes, yours. Wow, that is strong stuff. It is a warning to us all. God does not mess around on issues of justice. Justice is intrinsic to his being and seeking justice is intrinsic to what he asks of his people. Notice how God makes it clear that Ahab cannot just blame Jezebel. He was utterly complicit in this act. Just not stopping it was no excuse. And the general ease with which the wicked plot was accomplished is a vivid demonstration of how corrupt the society had become under Ahab's reign. God's righteous judgment is that Ahab and his royal line would come to an end. He would purge their injustice from the land. In the very place where Naboth's blood was shed, so would Ahab's and Jezebel's be, with the added humiliation that wild dogs would lick it up. There's a great poetic justice here, but of course it's much more than that. The point of God's judgment in the Bible is always to restore a situation where things have got out of kilter, to restore balance where people are getting hurt. When we read of God judging in this way, we're to be reassured that God will always ensure that things work out right in the end. God's judgment is never arbitrary. It is always holy and just. It serves his good purposes and benefits the oppressed in the land who previously lived in danger. Now, the ending of this story is really eye-opening. Nobody would expect a king described as more evil and more vile than any other to have a change of heart. That is indeed what happens. Rather like the conversion of Saul to Paul at the height of his persecuting crusade in the New Testament, Ahab's repentance here is good news for us all, stuck as we are in our sin. It's also a challenge for any of us who remain sceptical about the reach of God's grace. For let's be honest, as we read this story, we were all hoping that Ahab would get what was coming to him, that vengeance would be had. But fortunately, that's not how God thinks. Let's hear the end once more. When Ahab heard God's word of judgment, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and fasted. He lay in sackcloth and went around meekly. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Have you noticed how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself, I will not bring this disaster in his day, but I will bring it on his house in the days of his son. The passage does all it can to show that Ahab's repentance was genuine and not just a slimy attempt to slither out of just punishment. Not only does Ahab fast and put on sackcloth, but he actively sets out to change his ways. 
Verse 27 said that he began to conduct his affairs with meekness. Again, just as God saw Ahab's wicked intentions earlier, here he sees his integrity. God is pleased by his confession and allows the punishment to be mitigated. This is how God's word works in the Bible. When God declares something is about to happen, it doesn't mean that it has to happen, rather that it will happen if the hearer does not make the right response. Elijah's challenge brings Ahab to his senses, and this gives God reason to be merciful, which is always his preference. God suffers the consequences of lots of our sin in the hope that one day we will come to see it for what it is and repent of it. The fact that God does this is very good news indeed. And of course, this is equally true for Ahab's family and offspring. Elijah prophesied that Ahab's evil had become so ingrained in the nation, his sons would go on acting the same way their father had. Consequently, further judgment would come on them. This does not mean that Ahab's children are being punished for Ahab's sin, for that would be unjust. Rather, it is a reminder to us all that our children, the next generation growing up behind us, are deeply impacted by what we do. We're shaping them all the time. If we act unjustly, they will learn to act unjustly. If we tolerate oppression, they will tolerate oppression. And if they do not repent of that behaviour for themselves, they will suffer the consequences. As it happens, in this case, that is what turns out to occur. All those judgments about blood and dogs licking it up take place exactly as God said they would. For Ahab's family stubbornly refused to turn from their unjust ways and go back to the Lord. This story then really calls us to consider the injustices in the world today. What injustices are we party to? What injustices do we see happening but do nothing about? We can be sure that God sees them, and he sees us ignoring them. Ahab was complicit in the sins of others, as we might be ourselves. Ahab's children were affected by the model set by his greed. Let's make sure our children are not affected in the same way. Maybe the response God wants us to make from this passage is to take action. Maybe there is an issue in our neighbourhood or workplace that we need to stand up to. Maybe there is an issue in our church or our community that we need to call out. What delight there will be in heaven if those we challenge repent and begin to act justly and with meekness. But before we challenge anyone else, let's make sure we repent ourselves. Let us confess our greed in all its different forms. The promise is, if we confess our sin, God will be quick to forgive it. Why is this the case? It's because the greatest king, the king of kings, the lord of lords, the Lord Jesus Christ, did not just use his power to amass more land or greedily take over. He used his power to give up his life and serve the most vulnerable. Because the king selflessly went to the cross, we can be forgiven for our sin. Jesus was the complete opposite of Ahab, and we're to follow his example only.